covering downtown Rock. Boy, you're waking up now with we the are. power sound of the South, the NC State marching band, and you're listening to Blarned Arts Radio on Little Raleigh Radio. I'm Benny Mack, and hey, Betty. Hey, Good Jake. morning. I'm Jacob Downey, and one of the first of many things we're going to learn this morning is the NC State marching band released an EP. Yes, they did. So that's, that is pretty awesome. <laughs> How about that? That, that makes me happy. <laughs> uh, I love I love cutting through campus during, uh, I guess, when the... The kids first come back, yes, and you have band practice going on in the intramural yes. fields, and you just, everything you do feels epic, even though you're just moseying through. <laughs> it really does. It absolutely. You got the yeah the 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 band, the drum line was, is already out there. They're marching along. Absolutely, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun to see and hear. And uh, that that's kind of the the life and energy that we want to bring uh, on this edition of Lawn Arts Radio, your guide to dedicated and deliberate leisure here in the City of Oaks. Absolutely, and we have a special guest here in the studio with us, the keeper of NC State athletic lore, the unofficial historian, Mr. Tim Peeler. Tim, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. It's, uh, you know, an unusual, sleety Sunday morning. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and I didn't expect that when I got up today. No, I, th- I think uh, our spring of deception has ended and we're back into third winter, maybe. Well, it's not March 21st yet. Yeah. So, I'll allow But uh, it, it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm having uh, had a great weekend over in Greensboro at yeah. the ACC tournament. And um, there's nothing better than tournament time. I mean that's right. We are in March Madness. We're in the uh, in the thick of it. Uh, today is Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. Both NC State men's and women's are looking to get into the big dance right now. But we also wanted to bring Tim on to talk about it's the 40th anniversary of the '83 championship, the uh, Cinderella team, uh, cardiac pack. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's just a it's a fascinating story, and you've written books about it. Uh, I, I mean, this is just this is just a great story. Even if you're not a Wolfpack fan, to me, that's why that season was so special because of all of the ups and downs that happened there, the changes in the team, the changes in personality, and then the nine game postseason run starting at the ACC tournament in Atlanta, just is the most remarkable run in tournament history. Um, there were bigger upsets i don't consider states win over houston an upset yeah uh but there were many people boil that whole tournament 
into one singular play where Derek Wittenberg took a really bad shot uh, from 23 feet away and Lorenzo Charles was in the wrong place at the right time and made the dunk to win the championship. Uh, But it was so much more than that. So many unbelievable, incredible confluences of fate, uh, history, uh, you know, uh, destiny, whatever you want to call it. Everybody's uh, put new and different terms on it throughout the ages. But to me, that nine-game run was something that will never be replicated. Uh, And it hasn't really been replicated ever since. Not not at all. NC State was the number six seed in the tournament. There have been lower seeds that made it all the way to the final game, but none to win it uh, in the way that they did. Um, It was just uh, a – you literally there's someone writing a Hollywood script about it now and it can't match what that season was like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I remember my parents telling me because I was, I was a baby in 1983, (laughs) but I remember my parents telling me I was in a, in, in, in my crib sleeping and they were in the front room trying and you're jumping up and down and trying not to wake me up while they were watching that game. Right. I mean, people have that kinds of memories like that, you know, because it was such a Cinderella run. Absolutely. You know, the only thing that really matched that before was um, Long Island winning a championship on a last second shot in mm-hmm. 1961. Um, UNC Charlotte, which people completely forget about, but that was one of the most um, uh, one of the biggest Cinderella runs up until that time with Co- Cornbread Maxwell from Kinston. Uh, helping lead them to the title game in 1977. They did not win, but that was sort of the beginnings of uh, how North Carolina added to the legacies of um, NCAA tournaments. Mm-hmm. You know, the teams that were that from North Carolina who won championships or did well in the tournament before then were just totally dominating teams. North Carolina's undefeated team in 1957, NC State's team in 1974. Those were dominant teams that should have been there. When UNC Charlotte went to the championship in uh, 1977 and lost, that was sort of the beginning of stories like this. And then um, Uh, Dean Smith and his team with Michael Jordan as a freshman dominated in 1982. Mm -hmm. But then the story of that became that they didn't dominate in 1983. Uh, They lost twice to NC State. They lost uh, three games early in the season, even fell out of the top ten or fell out of the polls, which were 20 um, teams at the time. Um, It was an amazing run that began then. so the, the, it took the domination out of the sport. And that, that's what really changed the, the NCAA tournament was the domination of UCLA through the 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. NC State broke that in 1974. But it always took a team that was the best in the country. It always took a team that was, um, you know, two teams like Michigan State and Indiana State in 1979, which had the, uh, the matchup of Bird and um, – uh, magic yeah that put dominant teams on the floor together but there was never anything quite like the um the cinderella run that nc state had and then to complete it and then it happened again with villanova two years later yeah yeah and and, and so and it's fascinating to look back at the history of the modern basketball tournament anyway because it has the roots right here at reynolds coliseum is that correct 
Well, there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of history to what it had. When Reynolds Coliseum was built in 1949, one of the things that Everett Case wanted to happen was to have the NCAA tournament here, mm. and he did. Um, Everett Case was uh, known for the fact that whenever there was a tournament, he wanted to host it. He wanted to uh, hire the officials. He wanted it in his <laughs> own backyard. And that's why he was always successful in Raleigh and the Dixie Classic, the ACC tournament, the NCAAs, but never in Madison Square Garden, where he um. often took his teams to play in the NIT and the NCAA. He was never successful there. In fact, he had he basically had a curse at uh, Madison Square Garden where everything bad that happened to him happened to him there. It's kind of like uh, Jim Beheim in Greensboro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I will say that uh, Everett Case did really enjoy the Waffle House right outside of Madison Square Garden. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there was one, but he would have enjoyed it much more than Beheim would enjoy the Waffle House in Greensboro, which he made fun of. Oh, wait, do they all discover Bojangles? Do what? I said, wait, do they all discover Bojangles? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's one in New Jersey, so it's not far away. It's not far no. away. I think I think there's one in Union Station in, in uh, Washington D.C. And I'd spent summers there in college, and uh, that's where I had to get my fix. And I'd have to go to Union Station downtown to get my sweet tea fix there. Good deal. Well, should we play some music and then we'll come back and talk some more uh, about uh, the NC State, uh, uh, about that Cinderella run team. And we'll also be getting into uh, some uh, NCAA tournament. Uh, it's, as I said, it's Selection Sunday coming up this evening. Uh, get your brackets ready. Get your brackets <laughs> ready. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll, we can speculate a little to see where the men's and women's team are going to land and all that. All right. Well, uh, this morning we're going to play all music that uh, has been was performed um, on NC State's campus. Oh, cool. Uh, we're going to start out with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with I Second That Emotion. They played at uh, Reynolds Coliseum. Uh, I think it was in 67, but I could be could be wrong on the year. After that, we'll hear uh, Van Halen dance the night away. Uh, they were the headliners for the first live music over there at Carter Finley. Nice. <laughs> Truth Club right here on the uh, Little Rally Radio. Uh, the song is It's Time, and it's uh, time to be hanging out here in the studio with Tim Peeler. Absolutely. He's here. He is the uh, resident historian for all things NC State uh, athletics, and he's here to talk about March Madness, cause, which we are in the midst of. And, you know, NC State has a has a rich influence on uh, on on the modern basketball tournament, as we were talking about earlier, about uh, Everett Case and whatnot, but it also has a storied history uh, in and of itself uh, in the ACC and the NCAA. And and as you we were saying earlier, uh, this is this is the 40th anniversary of the 83 championship season, but the 50th anniversary of the 73 season. And that sets up everything else. Yes. You know, the 73 season for NC State was an undefeated year, 27-0. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were on an NCAA probation for some infractions committed after David Thompson had signed and was already on campus. The NCAA found some uh, improprieties that they thought were merited a one-year postseason ban. And uh, that prevented the, the 1973 team from going to the NCAA tournament. But before the season started, they learned of their uh, ban 
in December, Norm Sloan made the executive decision that his team was going to play in the ACC tournament. Now, the only other time an, uh, an ACC school was on probation uh, going into the tournament was 1961 with North Carolina uh, mm-hmm. when it was uh, involved in some the point-shaving scandals of that era. Uh, and Dean Smith made the executive decision his team was not going to participate in the NCAA or the ACC tournament. So, that, so coaches could make those that decision, those decisions? Well, it was, it was sort of left up in the air because the probation was worded um, – your season ended at the last regularly scheduled game of the season. Oh. And Dean interpreted that as the last game of the regular season. Regular season. But Norm very uh, contrarily said, our last regularly scheduled game is when we lose or win the ACC tournament. Yeah. So they um, went through the whole season undefeated, 25-0 and in the regular season, uh, got the first round by in the ACC tournament. The ACC was only seven teams at that time, yeah. which is still sort of blows your mind that they're more than double the number of teams in the ACC now. Yeah. Uh, but they um, they easily won their uh, second round or their, their semifinal game. Maryland won its semifinal game by 20 points over North Carolina, and then those two teams matched up for the um, ACC championship in Greensboro, 1973. Uh, but Maryland had already, but by winning in the semifinals, had already uh, secured the NCAA bid for the uh, ACC. So, in many ways, it was a game of little importance in terms of postseason play. But for NC State, Norm Sloan challenged the team to go undefeated, to sort of stick it to the NCAA, stick it to everybody who uh, um, thought that they would not uh, be able to – to go through and and they did it and it's one of the two undefeated teams in ACC history the other being the 1957 North Carolina team that won the national championship that just sounds like norm sloan cuz you know he was he was known for his bright uh, checkered red blazers you know <laughs> he wore a jacket at the 73 championship in greensboro that was red and black and yellow and white i mean uh, every time I uh, see that it, it looks like some one of his kids' baby quilts or something like that that has <laughs> turned into a plaid jacket. My favorite story with Norm Sloan is that um, he always wore those brightly colored plaid jackets, and uh, if you look at the statue that's on campus, you can tell the plaid jacket yeah. in the in the statue. But um, he uh, he bought those coats at Joe Sugar's down in. Um, near Rayford, I believe. No kidding. And uh, when he came back to be honored in 1999, just a couple of years before he died, um, he had on a plaid jacket. And I said, Norm, where'd you, where, is that one of your old jackets? He says, well, no, this is a brand new plaid jacket. But I got it down at Joe Sugar's because they still had some <laughs> left from the 70s when I would buy them down there. <laughs> Whether that's true or apocryphal, I don't know. But, but it came from perfect. him. It came out of his mouth. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, the 73 team was a great, great basketball team. Obviously, if it won all of its games, it had a couple of close games. But all, most, that's when David Thompson emerged as the best college, best player in college basketball. Yeah. And it, it, it cemented his legacy as the ACC's greatest player, mainly because of the game at Maryland at Cole Fieldhouse, where they had put together only the second nationally broadcast basketball game. Um, a very loose, um, 
network that covered 97% of the country, uh, but it was the lead-in for the 1973 Super Bowl, which oh, wow. featured Miami and Washington, um, with Miami trying to complete its own Undefeated. unbeaten yeah. season, undefeated oh, season. Oh, wow, and I didn't so, know that. And so that game was decided when Tommy Burleson, on a tie game, yeah. took a shot and missed it, and David Thompson soared over everybody else, grabbed it, and laid it in with uh, three seconds to play. And that was the moment that made David Thompson uh, put, set his path to becoming the greatest player in ACC basketball history. And it's fascinating when, you know, Michael Jordan would always – he credited David Thompson – uh, and wasn't it? Didn't Thompson uh, speak at Jordan when he was when when speak for Jordan when he was inducted in the Hall of Fame? So when you're um, inducted into the uh, to the Basketball Hall of Fame, you get to select somebody to introduce you. Yeah. And Michael Jordan called David and said, "You know, you were my hero. You were the guy I wanted to be when I was growing up in Wilmington. Would you please come and introduce me?" And so David did that. Uh, and if only for that fact that. David Thompson was Michael Jordan's hero. Anybody who doesn't believe um, of the greatness, the talent, all of that of David Thompson in the history of the ACC, um, then that that proves it. My, in my mind, um, there's nobody who's a close second. Maybe Christian Leitner. Yeah. But for as an ACC player, Michael Jordan would not rank in that, and probably in the top ten. But David Thompson is far and away number one. Yeah, it's just the way they their college careers played out. We'll we get to more about the ACC tournament, but I want to talk a little bit about you. You started out in newspapers. Yes, and you were. You, did you do sports reporting uh, to begin with? So I came to NC State in the fall of 1983 on the heels of NC State's 1983 national championship. Yeah, as a um, mechanical engineering student. Okay, and. I had known by the during the tournament, I got my letter of acceptance in the NC State Engineering School, which is quite a feat for a you know a guy from uh, Lincoln County, North Carolina, uh, to come here and study engineering. Um, but about my third semester, I walked into the technician offices at yep. NC State and started writing. <laughs> this is funny. The first thing I ever wrote about, and my my beat was women's soccer which had just started as a varsity sport. I had never been to seen or done anything with the soccer game in my life. And all of a sudden <laughs> I was the beat writer for a soccer team that ended up ranked in the polls that year as a, as a first year team. Oh, wow. uh, so I was completely on my own in terms of figuring it out. I took a soccer class in PE back then you took uh, you took like four semesters of uh, PE and they were split in two. So you got two, two classes every semester. So I took a soccer class just to learn a little bit about it. I still don't know anything about soccer, <laughs> but I did spend two years covering uh, men's and women's soccer uh, at that time. But I sort of got hooked. And, you, you know, if anybody's ever been a reporter or a writer, it is one of those things that just grabs you and will, will not let you go. Nobody can ever teach somebody else how to write, but you can teach somebody how to use their passion for writing um, and, and harness it the right way with journalistic uh, integrity and tenets and the things that you do to, to tell a story completely. But so after about three semesters in engineering, I changed my major over to English, mm -hmm. 
my parents still got my report cards that said ENG on all of them, so they thought I was fine. So uh, they never really knew that uh, English became my major. So graduation day was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> and then I got a uh, job in Salisbury, North Carolina as a sports writer and spent about 20 years working in newspapers. Fascinating. Fascinating. So did writing change how you enjoyed uh, watching basketball and other sports? So – Many people, when they say they want to become a sports writer, or many people who think people want to go into sports writing think it's because of the sports aspect of it. And to me, it was always the writing aspect of it because I think sports generates the best storytelling anywhere in the, you know, in a newspaper or in other places because there's always a story of overcoming something, either overcoming defeat, mm -hmm. overcoming probation, overcoming um, difficult upbringing. There's always something that um, that you can tell in the story that uh, promotes an achievement. I remember um, running into Jim Hunt one day at the um, airport, and he was sitting in Raleigh-Durham, reading the newspaper and I saw him he picked up the newspaper he unfolded it he put down the front page and the other pages and picked up the sports page and that's all he read and I asked him I said why did you only read the sports page and he says it's the only place where they talk about what people do that in a positive manner mm -hmm. or talk about achievements so everything else is about I don't know you know somebody's failings or somebody you know are wrongdoing. Sometimes there are stories of achievement, and, and those are always great, but it's like every day in the sports section, somebody has done something that is worthy of a story in a positive manner, and that made an impression on me. Um, so, did I get... I, I may have you, lost you, the no, original you're, you're question. <laughs> no, you did. No, okay. I think you got it, because yeah, I, I think you're right. You are correct, and full disclosure, I work for NC State as well. I'm in student media, but one of the things that I've been trying to you know, talk with the students about is that, yes, everyone wants to go cover football and basketball because they're the, they're the big they're the big sports on there. One of the things, though, that we I'm really glad to see is that there are students that are covering non-revenue sports. They're covering cross country. They're covering, you know, the sports editor over there now is a big tennis fan. So he is he is, is covering men's and women's tennis. Right. You know, it, it's just it's really it's really neat to see. And you are correct. That that sports really does uh, uh, tee up some of the best storytelling that you can read in American journalism. Absolutely, and I just want uh, as uh, advice to you, as an advisor to students, is yeah. to get them to be passionate about the writing and the storytelling. Everybody's passionate about sports. There are also a lot of people who are passionate about news and about yep. politics and about all those things. Mm -hmm. But the passion to become a to become successful at it is to want to do the writing and to be a good writer, which nobody can teach you. You have to be a good and voracious reader. So you need to read other people who are successful at it. Um, and the passion has to be in the writing aspect of it all, not just the, the sports or news or politics. So, and speaking of writing, you've written three books based on uh, about NC State athletics. 
Um, I, talk about that process. Talk about uh, going going through and, and writing those books, doing the research and the interviews and everything like that. So Ernest Hemingway said that writing books is easy. All you have to do is sit down at the typewriter or keyboard in my case and let your soul bleed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Writing is such a difficult process, but a, a lot of what I've written in the past, especially the books, are compilations of stories that I've written for newspapers or other outlets. Uh, but sitting down and going through the process of writing a book is not easy. Um, you know, I think on average, the three books that I've written are somewhere between um, 90 and 110,000 words. That's a lot of words and even for me who is someone who is very wordy and lengthy and long and overdoes some things uh i, I admit that as a, my own self-analysis um that's a lot and i i can tell you i can tell you about the writing process which sometimes involved sitting in the back of the minivan watching some games on dvd while my wife was driving us and two toddlers to uh florida uh, to staying up all night long and getting it right and hitting the sin button line for the hitting the sin button at the exact time of the final deadline yeah. for one of the books that I did, uh, which is perfectly on point for someone with a newspaper background. I was gonna say you're always you know pushing the envelope on deadlines, man. <laughs> Absolutely, it, and it's it's true, and it's it's part of the fun part of of that, but it's also part of the reason that. Um, most newspaper people die of ulcers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> slumped or over. alcoholism. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, both. Yeah, either one. Slumped over at our desks. You know, <laughs> no, don't mind Jim. Just shove him under his table. He'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do we want to take a break and come back and talk more basketball? Yeah, that that sounds like a good plan. Uh, I guess we're gonna hear some uh, Little Feet right now with the song "Roll 'Em Easy." And then after that, uh, stuff. We're going to hear stuff. We'll hear some old hours with uh, Wolfric. It's Max Gillen right here, Little Rally Radio. Lawn Darts Radio, the song is Bad Breeze. Uh, they're one of the many bands that performed in Harris Field right in front of the Witherspoon Student Center. Yes. Yeah. Harris Field, man. You know, they, they've almost turned that into a beach. Well, you know you have Tucker Beach behind Tucker Dorm with the uh, volleyball pits there. And past couple of weeks, the kids have been out there playing volleyball and they've been sunbathing and all that stuff. But Harris Field has really turned into a really cool hangout joint. You know, when I was in school at NC State, Harris Field was where we would play mud football. Yes. And, and it was because it was all, a big mud pit. It was a, always a big mud pit. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, and then people would go drinking there and, and hanging out. And you never knew exactly what you might slide into when you were playing mud football out there. But when I lived in Bregal, that's where you go hang out and and find activities when it was rainy and nasty and and nasty outside. Yeah, yeah, very cool. <laughs> well, we're here with Tim Peeler, the uh, unofficial NC State uh, athletics historian, talking about March Madness, uh, history of bas modern basketball tournament. Uh, Jacob, it's pretty fascinating how how much NC State has has uh, influenced sports history. Yes. Yes, know, Jacob. Know, that, yes, you're has. nodding your head. And, this is, and also, uh, this I mean, is how radio, much, <laughs> Jacob. <I understand. laughs> but also, um, how much um, 
sports has and then influenced NC State culture, that attitude of think and do, adapt and change, move survive and advance. And advance. Survive and, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So it, it goes back a long way. In 1950, NC State made it to its first Final Four. Um, that was the Everett Case era. That was pre-ACC. But uh, it came down to one spot left in the tournament, which was only eight teams in 1950. Um, and it was down between the defending national champion, Kentucky, with Adolph Rupp, yeah. and NC State, which had a better record. Um, to for At the time, it was di- divided up into eight districts. And so District 3 was what NC State and Kentucky were both in. And Everett Case said, you know what? We will play you for the spot. We'll we'll go to Duke Indoor Stadium and we'll play uh, for the spot. But Adolph Rupp was incensed about even being considered uh, second to NC State. And he said, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. So he left it up to the committee um, that chose the, the team. It was a, a vote. The committee just happened to be chaired by a former NC State football and basketball coach, Gus Tabell, who also was the guy who uh, recommended Everett Case to um, um, Chuck Taylor uh-huh. to be NC State's coach. So when it went to the committee decision, it was going to go to it was going to go to State. So that after that year in 1951, they expanded the tournament to eight uh, to 16 teams. Uh-huh. From eight, so they doubled it in 1974 because Maryland and NC State played in the greatest basketball game in ACC history, maybe college basketball history. Um, <clears throat> Maryland lost. Maryland was ranked number six in the country at one time. They were as high as number two in the country. They were one of the best teams in the history of the ACC, but they lost six straight times to NC State with David Thompson and Tommy Burleson. Uh, but because of that game in Greensboro, the 74 ACC championship game, um, NC State's uh, athletics director, um, Willis Casey, had just taken over as chair of the NCAA tournament committee from the athletics director at UCLA, who always wanted to suppress and keep the tournament small, 25 teams, because that was advantageous to um UCLA at the time, but because of the unfairness of Maryland not getting in, when Willis Casey came in, they finally got through to expand the tournament to 32 teams, and then the 54 or 48 teams, and then the 54 teams, which was the number of teams in the tournament in 1983 when NC State went then, and it expanded further then. So, not always because of NC State, but it was always. Uh, a part of um, the expansion of the tournament was the success that NC State had through those years uh, that helped uh, grow and, um, you know, make the tournament more relevant than it was in the past. So we've got, you know, so the 83 season, well, well, seven, well first of all, 74, that's the first, that's the first year NC State won the national championship. Correct. And that w- I just happened to be with many of the members of both the NC State and Maryland teams this weekend. They sort of kicked off the 50th anniversary of that season yeah. this year because it, it, the tournament's back in was back in Greensboro and may not be for a while. It's it's going to be in Washington D.C. next year, so for the 50th anniversary, it will not be here. Yeah. The the unique thing about the '74 season was that NC State never had to leave the state of North Carolina. Wow. It's first. The first round, the NC or the East regions were held at Reynolds Coliseum. Holy cow! And then when NC State won there, they went to Greensboro. 
And so they went to Greensboro for the ACC tournament, stayed in Raleigh for the East Regionals, and then went to uh, um, Greensboro. Now, there was a little trip up there because David Thompson, greatest player in ACC history, a three-time ACC player of the year, was playing against Pittsburgh, got upset that he got fouled on a shot. Um, His arm got hit. Um, went down on the other end of the court and said, I'm going to block the next shot that Pittsburgh takes. He did, but he also tripped over his own teammate's shoulder. Oh, 6'9", Phil Spence. So yeah. David was way up there. <laughs> fell and landed on his head or on the back of his neck. Severe concussion. Um, people thought he died. Literally, Walter Cronkite was on the phone with the old Rex Hospital waiting to hear if David Thompson had survived that fall. Wow. And um, David left. That was in the first half. He left. Everybody, the whole place was silent. NC State fell behind. They did not look like they were going to um, win that game. And then in the second half, Tommy Burleson standing on the free throw line, getting ready to be handed the ball. He didn't take the ball, but he looked over and saw David Thompson walking in with his head bandaged. Um white wrap all around him and he just left the free throw line and the rest of the players left the free throw line and went over to hug David because wow. they that's the first time they knew he was okay yeah and so the whole place goes crazy it's the loudest in uh, Reynolds Coliseum has ever been yeah which probably wasn't good for David's headache but <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that people never give credit for not only did NC State beat UCLA in the national semifinals to end the seven-game national championship streak UCLA had. They did it in double overtime in which they were down seven points in the second overtime. But David Thompson had 16 stitches in the back of his head from the concussion that he suffered five days earlier. Uh, He would never have been allowed to play under today's concussion protocols. That's what made that season so remarkable. NC State never had to leave. They lost to UCLA in St. Louis early in the season. It's the only loss they suffered in two seasons. But it also inspired them and made them win that game against UCLA in a return trip uh, on, um, you know, basically very friendly uh, grounds in Greensboro, which is why Greensboro is so important yeah. to uh, NC State. Well, NC State and the ACC in general. Yes. That's where it was founded, 1953, yeah. the summer of 1953 at the old Sedgefield Inn. Uh, and it's getting ready to move to Charlotte, which is a, a sad moment because yeah. for 70 years, the ACC and Greensboro have been inextricably linked. Um, but the 74 team was transformative because of the changes in the tournament, the expansion of the tournament, uh, the reinstatement of the dunk, which was not allowed at all during David Thompson's career. He never, he dunked once in his career in his final home game. He got a breakaway at the very end against UNC Charlotte. He goes down and midair, he decides I'm going to dunk it. And he dunked it. Uh, He got a technical foul. Norm Sloan took him out. The basket was disallowed. Had he made that basket, he would have ended up exactly at 30 points a game for that season in, and instead, he ended up at 29.9 points per season. Oh. Nobody has uh, averaged 30 points in an ACC season since 1962. Holy so cow. that one play changed that little bit of history for David Thompson. Yeah. But he got to dunk. And again, Reynolds Coliseum went crazy to see him do that because it was not allowed. The next year, it was reinstated. And 
uh, it became a bigger and better part of uh, college basketball. Fascinating. Fascinating. So fast forward to 1983. Right. We have Jim Valvano, young, young guy. This is his third team. He's, uh, uh, you know, a young Italian guy from Jersey, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, yep. he, and he's he's coming in and and he's got a, a, a stable full of young players. I mean, and that just and, and it between uh, Valvano and that team, they were. It just seemed like they were a lot of underdogs. They they were the underdogs of the season. So early in the season, that was a good team. It was ranked number sixteen in the preseason because it did have three really good seniors: Thurl Bailey, Sidney Lowe, and Derek Wittenberg. Mm. And so there were a lot of ex- expectations about that season. But again, it was uh, Jim Valvano's third season. He hadn't had a whole lot of success. They didn't make the tournament his first year. They made the tournament his second year, but lost in the first round. Uh, uh, Chattanooga mm-hmm. and did not play well at all and he had not won a game against North Carolina or Dean Smith and he always made a lot of jokes about it but it was eaten at him and everybody else that he hadn't beaten North Carolina but yeah. on February 19th 1983 Carolina defending national champions Michael Jordan um, Doherty all those all those guys on that team Perkins um, came in and NC State won that game, um, probably the biggest win in modern history of Reynolds Coliseum, if you can call something that happened 40 years ago modern. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was a transformative win because uh, they cut down the nets for a regular season game. Yeah. They uh, partied on Hillsborough Street and all over campus. It was a 2 o'clock game. They were still blowing horns all over campus at midnight. Jeez. Um <laughs> That was a one of those games that sort of set everything into motion. Now, Derek Wittenberg was hurt at that time. He didn't play in that game. He eventually came back a couple of games later, mm-hmm. and it set the path for what that team become. He was gone for 11 games, I think, and the team changed when he was gone. It was had always been, because it was a, a guard-heavy team, had always been a half-court team. When Derek went out, Ernie Myers came into the lineup, mm-hmm. and Ernie was not a half-court player. He was an up-and-down-the-court player. Mm-hmm. He went, uh, uh, you know, he was a, a New York playground guy, and so he wanted to go faster, and the team did go faster, and because of that, the three sophomores on the teams, on the team, Terry Gannon, Lorenzo Charles, and Kozoma Queen, became more involved in the offense, more involved in everything that they did, and were able to run up and down the court a lot more. Now, when Derek came back, the team did not revert back to what it had been before him. Oh, it, yeah. Derek changed to meet the team that they had become during his absence, and that became a much better tournament-ready team. When it got to the national championship, it became a slow-down team again, a half-court team. Mm-hmm. But, but, but it could because it was versatile enough to do that. But playing some of those earlier games against North Carolina in the uh, – ACC semifinals, they went up and down the court a lot more. They went into overtime against Virginia. They did the same thing. Virginia had, you know, the greatest player in uh, its history, Ralph Sampson. Um, So it was a team that became – it was the perfect kind of Valvano team because it was by the seat of its pants a lot of time. It was adaptable. It changed. It was able to do what he wanted to at any given situation. And – if it meant fouling somebody and just keep putting them on the line, putting them on the line, he would always do whatever he 
thought he could do to survive in advance. Yeah. That's where the phrase came from. That's what he always took to his team. It was an adaptable team that could change to any situation. And that, do you think of Ivano's style because it helped him so well for that team? Did that sort of play into his his downfall a little bit somewhat what people forget about Valvano was he was not a good regular season coach he barely was over 500 for his career at NC State in 10 years yeah um in the regular season he always tailored his team to be at its peak um for tournament time in 1987 his last ACC championship they lost six of their last seven regular season games I think something ridiculously bad but they got hot won the tournament um and that was his style he he was willing to not be successful during the regular season if his team learned a lesson or if he's his team learned some new way to adapt to things in that 87 season um in february he changed his point guard Uh, that's a pretty big thing for valvano especially in february in february yes so um the the most important thing about the 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 reason the eighty three team um, was successful was its adaptability to the loss of Derek Wittenberg, and most importantly to the return of Derek Wittenberg mm-hmm. and Derek's adaptation to what the team had become uh, during his absence because it was a different team. Yeah, yeah. That also had to change pretty dramatically how other coaches prepared to play NC State. Right, because they didn't really know how to prepare. Uh, you know, before the championship game against Houston, um, Valvano told the media, said, you know, if we get the opening tip, we may not take a shot till Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Monday night game. So we may not take a shot. But then in the locker room before the game, he um, he told his team, look, we're on the national stage, 40 million people, whatever number of million people are going to watch this game. You think I'm going to hold the ball? You think we're going to um, play a slowdown game? Hell no. We're going to go out there and we're going to run. And they did. They went out and ran like crazy just enough to get Houston exhausted in the high elevation of Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is over 6,000 feet. Yeah. Um, and then he pulled it back huh. and stopped and you know, uh, held back a little bit to play the half-court game that they did. NC State made two points in the second half by someone other than um, Sidney Lowe, Terry Gannon, or Derek Wittenberg, huh. and that was Lorenzo Ch- Charles's dunk. The big dunk. Yes. Yeah, crazy. Man. <laughs> So you're taking a music break and come yeah, back uh, come back that. into uh, uh, some more basketball after that? More basketball, more March Madness. Yes. Uh, some outer space. Yes, yeah. Dance. We got to get into, got to get news in space as well. All right, let's play some uh, Regina Carter. She's a fantastic saxophonist that uh, NC State champions quite a bit. Uh, about once every two years or so, she comes to Stewart Theater. Yes. Then we'll hear uh, Charlotte Ammons uh, with the song Dear Nora. Uh, she played last year at the uh, Lake Raleigh Concert Series. Very that cool. they're bringing back. That's Regina Carter. I mentioned she was a saxophone player, and I was thinking of Lakeisha Benjamin, her her longtime collaborator. She is a violin player, uh, and that's off of her. Uh, um, all all accentuate the positive is from her Coltrane tribute, and it's right here on Little Raleigh Radio. Fantastic violin player. I yes, I did that. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was and, some good uh, stuff. Great, great stuff to kick off the eleven o'clock hour. 
So we're yeah. If you're just joining us, we're here uh, in the uh, Beaver Creek uh, Creekside Studio. Creekside Studio here with uh, Tim Peeler, uh, good friend and uh, uh, unofficial uh, historian of all things NC State athletics. And Jacob, you were making a great point off off uh, mic here during the break. It, it wasn't a point, but it's you know one of the things we talked about last week was uh, when you grew up in North Carolina, of course. Uh, rolling the TV into the classroom, uh, everybody watching the NCAA tournament, the ACC tournament. It's it's definitely a rite of passage if you've been in Raleigh longer the, than the a year high. and you haven't picked out your sports team. Congratulations, you're it, Wolfpack fans now. Yes, you are. Uh, well, welcome, welcome to welcome to the pack. <laughs> But, uh, it's a high holy week in North Carolina, AC, ACC tournament time. <laughs> absolutely. But, uh, but in general, uh, one of the things that kind of um, athletics does, at least for NC State, uh, is a way for folks to stay connected to the university, uh, whether they've, they've grown up in Raleigh and it's always been a part of their backyard or they've come to Raleigh for their own education at NC State. It's um, – or – do you see it feels like it's a way for people to stay connected do you see it is a way for absolutely it is because you know athletics has always been the front door of the university it's the first time many people ever hear of a school um the person who followed me a sports editor of uh technician when i way back when i was in school came to nc state because she was so uh interested in the 83 national championship team the news editor of technician came to NC State from Blacksburg because of that. You know, they they just they didn't know about NC State before then. They knew about them after and they ended up in school here. They were yeah. both from out of state. That, that's how I came to NC State was um when you know, I was like five, six years old and they were giving out um and I was in kindergarten in eighty three and they were giving out pencils of the you know the ACC <laughs> champions. So yeah. I was like, well, that's where I'm going to go to college. <laughs> was it one of those Larry Nielsen pencils that he used to give out when he was provost all the time? That was his trademark. Thing. Really? He would <laughs> hand out pencils? Hand Nielsen out pencils. would? Absolutely. Um, no, but it, it, Wait, it, he it, was in natural resources. He's making pencils out of trees? Come absolutely. On. What else are you going to make them out of? <laughs> but um, it, it's the front door. Uh, when the stadium series game was at Carter-Finley, I went over to talk to Rod Brendamore. The day after he was traded to um, the Hurricanes in 2001, 2002, whatever that was, mm -hmm. he went to an NC State basketball game uh, and was sitting right next in a, in a suite next to Torrey Holt. He's just looking at somebody, an NFL star who had just won a Super Bowl um, and connected with him. Then he connected with Sidney Lowe. They, they became friends. Um, he had no reason from whatever part of uh, – uh, Canada that he was from to know anything about the local sports scene but he said you know I knew I kind of had to pick a team and so I picked NC State that very first day um, and then he ended up marrying someone who had a deep uh, NC State athletic connection and uh, he's been a big state fan ever since at least that's what he told me. I loved your piece about Ernie Myers and Annabelle because I did I never knew Annabelle was married to, to Ernie Myers and yeah. she, she was the uh, uh, SID when I was uh, at Technician back in the day. Yep, you know they they met uh, when Sidney Lowe was introduced as head coach, and they yeah. were brought together by someone who was always very special to me uh, because of my time at NC State as a student, and that was uh, women's basketball coach Kay Yao. Yes, yes, and and there was never a greater overall ambassador for North Carolina State University than Kay Yao. She did not go to school here. Right. You know, she never played college basketball. She went to East Carolina to become a teacher. 
But when she came to school here, if anybody ever walked by Reynolds Coliseum and they saw her out, she would flag them down, ask them what they were doing, what's going on, uh, just became friends with everybody. And when Ernie was going through a whole lot of emotional things, um, some depression, not depression, but just had some, some things going on in his life. He needed someone who was grounded and, um, he sought out coach Yao and she sought him out because she knew he was going through a whole lot of things. And, uh, she said, look, Ernie, just come, come hang out at the office. If things are getting Ernie's had some family issues where, uh, none of his family was around during his freshman year when NC state won the national championship in 1983. Hmm. Uh, and so she connected with him. Uh, and the way he told me the story is that he just needed somebody and he, she was the shoulder that he could lean on. Um, as, uh, as with other players, because Valvano at that time was not the same. He, he had that kind of a close personal connection with his seniors, but not with his underclassmen. Okay. And, um, so when he came back down here in 19 or in 2006, when Sidney Lowe was named head coach, he went over and said hello to coach Yao. Coach Al said, hey, Ernie, I'd like for you to meet someone. She knew Annabelle. They had gone to church together, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and um, she introduced Ernie and Annabelle, and like seven or eight months later, they got married. Wow. Uh, and have been married since 2007. Um, and, you know, it's one of those really cool stories that uh, because athletics is such a connective thing for everybody, going back to talking about how – it is the front door of the university. It's a place where you make relationships that are lasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know from my personal experience, um, I still have lasting connections with the people who first got me started writing at Technician, uh, the people I first hung out with uh, when I got here, the people I met at orientation. You know, um, one, of the, one of the great, not great, one of the things that really hurt was when um, a couple of years ago, it was during the pandemic, that um, someone I met at orientation who had been through some health problems mm-hmm. died of a brain tumor. Mm. And, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. It's not only that you're connected, but you share your mortality with the people that you went to school with. Yeah. When things happen to them, weddings, births, graduations, divorces, anniversaries, all that kind of stuff. You're, you're still connected to, to, to the university because that's where you met those people that went through all those things. Yeah. They, they become your anchor. Yes. Yeah. If folks wanted to read stories like the one um, that Ben was referencing with Annabelle, where, where's a good place for them to find those? So a lot of the things that uh, I write um, for the university end up on the ncsu.edu homepage. Uh, there is a news page that goes off of that site. Uh, I write just about anything that relates to uh, storytelling, history, um, features, profiles, all that kind of stuff uh, on the NC State news page, which you can find off of the ncsu.edu site. Um, you know, I, one, one of the things that I think you should always tell students is to be versatile. Yeah. So I, I find myself writing about just about anything, which is good. And um, on a campus as large as NC State's, just about anything can happen. So it's it's kind of fun to be yeah, able to do those things. Uh, I think it was off mic, but there was a conversation a little while ago where you're talking about the one of the most important things an aspiring writer can do is be there. Yes. Yeah, just show up. Just show up. Uh, be 
and be curious about things. It's one thing to be there and and watch, but you you have to ask questions. And you know, one of one of my favorite stories that I've written recently is just that it was a big deal that the um, NHL brought its stadium series to Carter Finley Stadium. Only the second time it's ever played in um, a college football um, stadium, and the reason that was important because I, I knew this from going way back and doing a whole lot of research and uh, writing history stories is that the first hockey game ever played in the South anywhere first professional hockey game was in Reynolds Coliseum, which at the time of its opening had a full ice rink on the floor at Reynolds Coliseum. No it, was, kidding. it was built to be a ice rink. That's how they were going to pay for the operational cost of uh, Reynolds Coliseum. Wow. And for the first four or five years of the col- after the Coliseum opened, um, it had a full-time ho- uh, ice on the floor of Reynolds Coliseum. Uh, wow. And they played um, ECHL hockey games there, uh, right. exhibition games. And because they were successful in Raleigh, um, when the Baltimore Bullets hockey stadium in the middle of a season burned down and they had no place to play, they moved to the Charlotte Coliseum, which followed NC State's model mm. of building an ice rink in the floor of the Coliseum. They did the same thing in Greensboro when they built their Coliseum in 1958. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it made hockey relevant in the South. Nobody remembered that story, even when the hurricanes came here in 1997. Yeah. Uh, but it's all connected. Everything is connected in some way. I always say some things that happen have always happened before. It's just a matter of whether anybody remembers them or can, can tell about that Yeah. in the past. And that's, that comes from curiosity. That's what the, the curiosity comes in. Exactly. You were talking about KL, and I, I, I earlier uh, this year, I think it was last month, was the Play for K game. Yes. Uh, big sold-out team, big sold-out game at Reynolds Coliseum for women's basketball, raising money for cancer research, the KL Foundation. But I had to explain to one of the students who KL was because they didn't know. Wow. And, and and I was in it was kind of a, a little bit of a shock to me mm-hmm. and they listened and they understood but but they were like it, it was kind of weird because they were like I kept talking about KL KL and they're like who is KL mm. I'm like oh that could be so alien because a li- her, her yeah. personality was so present so yes. present yeah. she was all I mean she was a constant. When I was a student, she was there. Before I was a student, she was there. After I left there, she was there. When I worked for the Greensboro paper, which was her hometown paper, yeah. being from Gibsonville, um, she always had a special connection, mainly because if the NC State women's basketball score was not in the Greensboro paper the next morning, her dad, Hilton, called us up <laughs> to let us know that NC State played the night before. And I had to, you know, all of us had to take those calls from Mr. Yao to explain why we didn't get the score in the paper. Uh, and he was her biggest fan. He was always behind the bench. Um, and I, I will never forget when she was going through her, you know, the, the, the worst part of her cancer treatment when she had to take time off during yeah. the 2007 season mm. uh, and then came back. And then went through a remarkable run in March of that year, right around her birthday, right around the NCAA ACC tournament and NCAA tournament. Her dad died. Yeah. And they had the funeral in the middle of all that in Gibsonville. And so I, I, I went to 
um, to, you know, the receiving line for that, just uh, because that connection was always important to the folks in Greensboro the, at the newspaper there, uh, because we knew to expect that call from Mr. Yao. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was working in athletics at that time, so I had a connection even more to Coach Yao. Um, and she, you know, she handled all of those things and all of that with such great dignity and such great uh, pride in being the daughter of someone who took her to the Dixie Classic and to ACC tournaments. And um, so that was a that was an important, crazy, emotional time for her and for everybody in the NC State community. But that's also the time that she began what was then called Hoops for Hope. Yes. And I remember um, – the first time they happened, she was so excited about that possibility and so excited about the silent auction. And the, um, you know, it was important to her to have Reynolds Coliseum uh, broken down into places where people could learn about what they could do to either prevent or treat uh, breast cancer, any kind of cancers, because, um, and I still get, I, I get choked up every time I hear it, but I have her on tape saying, I don't like talking about myself. I don't want to share my story with everybody else. I mean, it's a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. um, breast cancer, cancer in general, all of that. She did not want to do it. But somebody pulled her aside and said, Coach Al, you have always been the leader of a team. You have always been a coach. You have always shown people how to get through things. This is your biggest team now. Um, all people who are going through cancer who are going through breast cancer, who are going through the whole process of this. So if if you don't lead this team now, then why did you ever become a coach? Mm. And the, and so she was out front, and she became the face of um, women fighting cancer. They developed what was then called play for, or you know, just the, the pink ribbons and yeah. the pink shoes. It's now play for K. Every school in the country does a... Uh, a pink game, mm -hmm. whether it's for basketball, men's basketball, women's basketball, volleyball, softball, all of those things. All of that is because of Kay Yao and the things she brought to the game and her leadership of her most important team. And that's the people who are fighting or who have survived cancers. I have a colleague works two doors down from me um, who was in the parade of survivors uh, and wrote something for the university. Her name was Delyn Ford. And you can find yeah. that story on the, on the NC su.edu website uh, about just what it felt like to be out there for the first time. She's a one-year um, cancer-free survivor. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it always becomes emotional because there's not a person out there in your listening audience right now. There's no one who's a sports fan who hasn't been affected by the loss of someone with cancer. And my mom died of uh, pancreatic cancer, which is a terrible, terrible disease. Yeah. Um, and... That's what should always connect um, NC State to the broader community is folks like her, the Jimmy V Foundation yeah. with uh, him. You know, Everett Case also died of cancer. Jim Valvano died of cancer. KL died of cancer. It is a thing that specifically has affected this community more than most. And if we don't continue to tell that story and let your, your young reporters, your young students know who those people are, then we're, we're missing out. Both K. Yao and uh, Everett Case are in the Naismith uh, Memorial 
Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah. That is the National Hall of Fame for basketball. Um, and they both have important stories to tell. Jim Valvano, every year we come around to March. Last week was his birthday. Mm-hmm. He would have been 77. Um, we see that speech from the ESPYs. Uh, we see the version of that speech that he gave at Reynolds Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Um, those things are all tangibly important. And going back to how does sports connect you with the university, it also connects you with the larger universe that, of things that we all go through. And speaking of that, um, that, and that, that need to to keep moving forward and to keep yes ride the clock out. Basically. Yes. And speaking of that connection, it's, I think it's a beautiful connection. Jimmy V is buried at Historic Oakwood uh, Cemetery in downtown Raleigh, and Lorenzo Charles was killed in a wreck, and he is buried not not too far, just a row over from within from, sight. Yeah, uh, within uh, within sight of Jimmy V's uh, 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 grave. Yes, and you know. Losing Lorenzo, I, I can't believe it's been as long as it has. I think it was 2011 or yeah. 12. And it's amazing to celebrate a anniversary of any kind um, about the 83 team and not have Lorenzo um, there to do it is uh, – it, it blows your mind. I, I will never get one of the great things I ever remember about my time at NC State having written some books. I wrote a book called When March Went Mad, which is a celebration – of the 83 championship. Um, I gave Lorenzo a copy of the book one day at a game mm-hmm. when, when it first came out, as I did with all the players uh, on that team, everybody I wrote about. And um, I walked into the next game uh, and I saw Lorenzo sitting down. And Lorenzo had this incredibly stern face. He was, he had muscles in his head. <laughs> he was muscular all over. He was an intimidating presence. Yeah. And he had this stern look. And when you saw that look, you weren't really sure what he was, what he was going to say to you because he was imposing. Yeah. That's the best word I can come up. Um, and if you've ever seen how, how muscle bound he was, um, he could be frightening. Um, but he had that stern look on his face when I walked up to him the next game. Lorenzo also had this incredible smile that he would break out into, and he would t- brighten up his whole face and the whole room, everything. And when he smiled, you knew something good was going on. So he was sitting there with a the stern face, and he said, Tim, I read your book, and I was just waiting for something really bad to come for. And then he broke out into the smile. He said, I sat down in my chair the night after you gave it, and I didn't put it down until I finished reading it. Wow. And he said, you got everything right. Um, now that could be debatable, but I, <laughs> I got it right from his perspective and the things that he remembered from that uh, season. Um, and I can't think of a greater compliment than somebody who was there at all of that, who played the biggest and most important role in all that. Let's not forget Lorenzo score, Lorenzo Charles scored, uh, the winning points in three of NC State's six NCAA tournament games that okay. year. Yeah. Um, so Lorenzo was huge uh, and important to that story, and for him not to be here anymore just always makes my heart heavy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about 11.30. Don't you think maybe – what do you think, Jacob? Should we switch gears a little bit? Yeah, we can We can switch gears for a moment. Okay, let's. <laughs> it's time for news in – Space! 
Yankees. That's right. It's our weekly look at the happenings of the heavens, sponsored by my NASA logo hat. It's the Worm logo, the finest piece of marketing design in all of human spaceflight. And I tell you what, we've got some exciting stuff going on, uh, not the least of which... Uh, NASA came out and uh, NASA recently came out and said that the Artemis One mission was big thumbs up, complete success. Yes, big one, Artemis One. That was the uh, the uh, uncrewed, uh, um, the unmanned, the uncrewed mission to uh, to the moon and back uh, from last uh, last year. And we are fixing to hear about who is going to be on Artemis Two, the the crewed mission. That is going to take another uh, uh, humans to the moon. Not going to land, but go, but go out around to it. go around the moon, and that's going to be on Monday, April third. NASA and the Canadian Space Agency, because it will be American and a Canadian astronaut. And we're trying to, and so we're all fingers crossed here because will NC State's own Christina Cook be on that mission, or will she be on her way to the moon at some point? Now, is it expected that the astronauts for that mission are going to become regular astronauts for the entire Artemis project? Pro well, I mean, they're part of the they're part of the uh, Artemis project. This is this is would be the Pathfinder mission, I think. So, but I believe that the Artemis project has eighteen astronauts that have already been named, and from yeah. that pool of astronauts, they will choose both the um, members of the crewed mission around them that will orbit the moon. And also the members of the uh, crew that will land on the moon. Yeah, and you, Tim, you recently spent some time with Christina Cook because she was in Raleigh earlier this year. She was at the Museum of Natural Sciences uh, back in January and gave two presentations over the course of a couple of days. And I, I spent a little bit of time with her and spoke with her and listened to her presentations. And you know, as excited as you were, Ben, just a few minutes ago, talking about space and uh, your introduction, she is even more excited about <laughs> space and about the opportunity that she created for herself to become an astronaut after earning three degrees at NC State yeah. in physics, in uh, electrical engineering, and a master's degree. Um, she is truly, that's all she ever wanted to do and be was a, a NASA astronaut. She spent more time at the International Space Station than any uh, female astronaut in history. Uh, she's already been a record-setting space uh, explorer, but um, the opportunity for her to be the first woman to step on the moon is there, and yeah. she recognizes and, and understand that she has... Uh, she has that opportunity in front of her. Whether it will happen or not, that's up to uh, a you know a governmental agency that has very little control over. You know, she has very little control over what she she will do there, except for the fact that she has done her job incredibly well. Yeah, and fun fact. She's a technician alum. She is. She was a photographer <laughs> at technician. She learned to take pictures at NC State and then went on to take pictures of every human being alive on the planet Earth yeah. while she was <laughs> she was at the space station. It's a pretty cool thing to step from technician uh, because I know the uh, requirements and uh, the things that you had to do to be a technician reporter and yeah. photographer, which at the time that I was there was absolutely no experience whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> there were no qualifications, uh, but to go from there to be able to, you know, she was able to take one or two items with her to the space station for her 
uh, extended stay there, and she chose to take a camera so she could take pictures of the heavens from the space station. We had a picture of hers. It was a feature photo hanging up on a bulletin board, and it was of two professors outside smoking. <laughs> and the headline read, Professor so-and-so-and-so-and-so enjoying the enjoying the uh, enjoying the day, smoking the pipes, and shooting the shit. <laughs> <laughs> that was technician quality control at its That's best. That's exactly right. <laughs> I actually brought that up to her in an interview. She goes, what? <laughs> I said, you probably did not write that caption. <laughs> she did not. But I know the editor of the time at the time, and uh, he still refers to that all oh, the time. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But so, talk about being there. Yeah, really. Talk <laughs> yes. about being there. But um, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, Christina Cook has launched herself into becoming the most uh, nol- or most uh, recognizable. Um, graduate of nc state of modern times and is up there in the the top five top ten graduates of all time if you start talking about someone like jim hunt Mm -hmm. max gardner um you know uh, bill friday bill friday james goodnight all of those jim graham jim graham folks like that christina cook's name is among uh the legends of uh nc state's uh top graduates yeah what else you got, Jacob? Well, speaking of the moon mission, yeah, uh, NASA's getting ready to. Uh, well, they just finished testing a new telescope that they want to put on the dark side of the moon, the the Lucy telescope. The plan is to launch it there um, on 2025, with the hopes that this uh, it'll be a radio telescope and it has to be perfectly quiet. And the plan is to uh, capture the the side of the universe that we don't get to see mm-hmm. um, from our from here on Earth. Uh, because the moon has its own uh, day-night cycle. Oh. And so the telescope will be, when the moon is facing away from the planet, will be recording uh, what's out there. Oh, fantastic. Fascinating. Here's a fun fact. The moon phase cannot help you find your soulmate on TikTok. Are you sure? <laughs> Apparently. <Man>. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> I was going to say, that's going to be, that's probably going to be bad news for my wife, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, we were we were we were matched. You were meant to be, but guess not. Uh, Apparently, there's a new trend on TikTok that suggests that users can compare phases of the moon on the day they were born to determine if they were soulmates. (laughs) Okay, the the kids' fascination with the zodiac. I know, right? And and uh, you know, if you if you're into astrology, that's fine. I I get it. I you know, it's really I love looking looking at looking at the stars and fr- trying to find the constellations and and everything like that. But just so you know, Mercury does not actually reverse <laughs> its orbit in space. So if it's in retrograde, that is an optical illusion. <laughs> when uh, when you were growing up, did you participate in the the school science fairs? Yes. I did too, but I was always frustrated um, because I felt like any science fair project you did in school, you were just replicating experiments someone had already done. Yeah. You basically were just proving what was already printed in the textbooks. And I was like, that is not science. (laughs) It it is. Testing and repeating (laughs) testing is. Uh, But some students from fourth grade to sixth grade in Ottawa uh, recently completed a science fair project. And this is amazing. They actually got to prove or answer a question that had never been asked before. They wanted to know if... EpiPens would work in space. Um, EpiPens, of course, are what you do uh, if you have a severe allergic reaction, and they were part of the first aid kits uh, that are packed on the space shuttles. 
but no one had ever tested the EpiPens. And so NASA, once they asked them that question, they're like, that is a great question. We don't know how. We didn't think to ask that. And so they let the students uh, through a, the NASA Cubes program uh, send EpiPens into space um, and then saw how the being a no, a no gravity affected the EpiPen. And it turns out it not only breaks down the components, but it turns some of those components toxic. Oh. Um, and so uh, the kids were able to learn that the astronauts, without them asking these questions and testing science, uh, could have turned out to be a very dangerous response to an emergency situation. Holy cow. One of the great things is when uh, Christina gave her uh, pres presentation at um, the um, Museum of Natural Sciences um, were questions that were asked by young members of the audience. And they asked her things that I never thought to really ask her about or talk about. But, you know, from the simple to the complex, they said, How'd you do laundry in space? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I didn't That's ask that question. That's a great question. And the answer is she didn't. Um, she she said, you know, their clothes were all disposable, and she would wear, sh because you're, in, you're not in gravity, clothes don't cling to your body. Yeah. So she said, I could wear a shirt for about a week. I would wear the same pants, every, you know, for a month. Um, and workout gear because she worked out every day on the space station. She changed every day or two. Yeah. But basically, they just put on, they jettisoned them with the uh, trash um, whenever they were getting ready to get rid of them. And then, you know, they would be resupplied every few days or every couple of weeks. And they would just send new clothes up whenever she needed them. Oh, uh, so. I didn't even I didn't think about didn't it. Didn't even think and about that. Yeah. They, they ask how how do you sleep in space? Yeah. You, know, you just sort of sleep. Well, you zip yourself up in this really tightly contained compartment because that's how we all sleep in, in either in a ball or tight tightly contained. Mm -hmm. It was um it was a great question and and uh, the curiosity going back to that of uh, youth uh, always comes up with new and different questions yeah. like that. Well, and one of the uh, one of the great uh, innovations is kind of come out. It's coming out in Artemis, and one of the things NASA is going to be introducing soon is the new generation of spacesuits. Because a few years ago, NASA was pushing the all women space uh, spacewalk, and they had to postpone it because oh, yeah. they didn't have they didn't have spacesuits up there that would fit do uh, it fit uh, the women astronauts. And so now they're all going to be modular, so you can sort of, uh, uh, it's kind of like a Lego set. You can mix and match all the components that you need to match any body type. And Christina talked about that because she was part of that all-women's crew, and um, it was her and... Jessica Meir, wasn't Jessica it? Jessica Meir, yeah. yes. Uh, and it, the, it, bec it became possible because of some circumstances on the um, space station where one of the men could not go yeah. and they had to rearrange it all. Um, and like you said, the space suit didn't fit yeah. uh, one of the two of them. And so they had to wait till they sent a new suit up that would be the right size because you don't want to be out there and uh, have too much uh, room in your space suit when you're out there in, uh, uh, in the vacuum of space. Yeah. Um, but it did end up that not only were there two female uh, astronauts, on the spacewalk, but the people in mission control um, were all women as well. So wow. it was a totally 
uh, female crew that participated in the spacewalk in Houston and on the space station. That's fantastic. Very good. You got anything else? That, that's about it for me this week. All right, good deal. Let's wrap that, that, that wraps it up here for News in Space, sponsored by my NASA logo hat, the finest the worm it's the worm logo the finest it's piece back. and it's back <laughs> i found it <laughs> in a catalog <laughs> <laughs> i had lost it actually i just bought a new one but anyway it's the worm logo the finest piece of marketing design and all of human space flight let's play some more music for a moment yeah uh, we promised some charlotte Ammon, so we're gonna do that with dear nora and then uh, we'll play some uh, some John Prine with uh, Rocky Mountain Time. Yeah. Uh, John Prine played, um, I can't remember what year he played at NC State, but I think it was, I know it was in the 70s. I think it was, it was sometime between 77 and 79, I think. Good deal. You're tuning into Little Raleigh Radio. <laughs> That's our Archers and Loaf. They're back singing about their Raleigh days, a little bit of nostalgia, and uh, also about moving moving forward. How moving things forward. change, but, but where those continuity threads come from and uh other other big c words with uh, tim peeler here on lawn darts radio thanks i appreciate that this has been a whole lot of fun just talking about all kinds of things yeah absolutely yeah i appreciate you being here so you know we've been talking about basketball and you know today is selection sunday uh you know we're looking at uh the men's uh the men's team State men's teams are probably gonna, uh, they're 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 gonna get in the, uh, they're likely gonna get into the big dance. So are the women's. We don't know where the seedings are or anything like that. But one of the fascinating things that I'm I'm noticing in this season is the ACC in general is just not good. <laughs> it has not been the kind of season everybody expects from the ACC. I mean, I was talking with someone yesterday. We had lunch, and you know. Back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was not unusual to have eight, maybe nine teams from the ACC going to the uh, NCAAs. Um, I think maybe this year it might be four, wow. maybe five. Holy cow. Which, then that may be generous. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it's just not been, you know. I do think one thing that one-year basketball players, transfer portals, all those things have spread um, the wealth out all over the place to uh, different and new schools. You're not going to have the same kinds of dominance that you had with um, when um, Mike Krzyzewski was a head coach at uh, Duke or Roy Williams was a head coach at North Carolina, and those teams were always kind of there. They always had a continuity because – of the long-standing relationships that they had at that school, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen at many schools, if any schools, anymore. Because uh, every year is a reset, just about under current rules and current guidelines for uh, basketball teams. In that you you don't recruit for three years from now. That was one thing Jim Valvano always did at NC State. He would recruit for the long haul. Um, he brought in Vinny Del Negro as a favor to a family friend, uh, and he didn't play for two and a half years. Wow. There, there would never, and actually Tom Gugliotta was the family friend, but Vinny Del Negro was somebody who didn't play early on. Um, he, he would bring them in to develop them. Uh, and not saying that's right, wrong, or better, it's just that that's the way it was at that time. Mm. Uh, but there are no players who will come in anymore uh, and be told to wait to produce uh, on a significant team. 
They want to play now, and if they don't get to play now, they will go somewhere else and play then. Yeah, <laughs> um, It's just the way college basketball and college athletics is set up these days. Again, right, wrong, indifferent, whatever, it's just the way it is. And you, we all have to kind of accept it and, and play under those rules because that's what it is. Well, And Kevin Keats. Well, how, he, I was going to say, how long is recruitment season now then if, if you don't have that time to plan? Like, when do the coaches know what kind of team they're going to have? the following ball i'm not sure they do yeah <laughs> just because uh, it's so fluid and that was done to benefit the players and uh, allow them more flexibility under the guidelines that the ncaa imposed because people thought that there was an unfairness to players um but it changes everything in how they're doing I, I think there were a whole lot of unintended consequences over the decisions to make that were made to uh allow uh, the fluidity that we have in college athletics now. And we're yeah. all seeing that. Um, I've had coaches tell me that there was no forethought, let alone um, intended consequences out of the whole thing uh, of, of how it was going to affect what they were doing. And so everybody is scrambling to figure out how to be successful under the new rules and under uh, the guidelines uh, that they now have to abide by. Um, I think until if they reassess what they want those guidelines to be, then we might have a little bit more idea. We might have a little bit more planning involved, but there is no reassessment on the uh, horizon that I know of. I think they're going to look at some things, but the transfer portal portal is here to stay. Obviously um, uh, the name image and likeness um, programs are here to stay yeah. uh, and that will directly affect recruiting. Now I, I think it has helped the schools that have the most uh, possibility for um, you know donations and money. I think it, it doesn't spread the wealth around. It just concentrates it back into the schools that always had yeah. that money and had that uh, those resources, which I'm not sure is good for basketball, but uh, you know, I can count on zero hands the number of people who called and asked my opinion on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to his credit, Coach Keats, Dick Kevin Keats, has done pretty well uh, utilizing the transfer portal. Yes. Especially last year uh, when he really was on the hot seat for his job and then had and recruited uh, you know, almost a whole new team and th- – They've been on a hot streak. And one of the things that I thought when Kevin Keats was hired uh, to his benefit and the best thing about his resume was he was a very successful prep school coach uh, for that era after high school, before college, which is a new roster every single year. Yeah. And so he did that for 16 years. Uh, So he he knew how to build a team from scratch every season. Every season. Wow. and so that's always been a beneficial thing for him. And we saw that this year because he did transform a team that finished last in the ACC standings to one that finished in the top um, top six of the ACC standings. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. uh, it is an important skill to have. Very much so. You got anything uh, else? No. no. Uh, thank you very much again for com- coming up this morning. It's been a lot of fun. Getting yeah. us excited. And- Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you. We'll have to trade brackets one day. I know, right? (laughs) I am the world's worst bracket person, so I don't even participate anymore. (laughs) Uh, 
and again, uh, most most folks that they want to keep up with your writing, you mentioned uh, ncsu.edu is a good good spot to uh, do that search for Tim Peeler, and uh, uh, all sorts of good stuff will come up. Uh, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I hope I hope uh, I hope the stories that we tell and we get to tell about NC State are ones that are engaging for the folks who are out there consuming it, because that's always our our goal is to tell a good story to the audience that we're serving. Yeah, good deal. We'll leave you with a little bit of alumni music from NC State. Uh, this is a guy that got his start over at the uh, the Cipher program uh, down there in the Tunnel of Free Expression. This is Skywalker with the original electronic mix uh, called Grind. Uh, yeah. We'll be back next week. We'll with, see you uh, then. Who's coming up next week? Oh, next week we got got the guys from the Raleigh Astronomy Club. So it may be an all news in space <laughs> show. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about this. This is going to be great. So tune in next week. Until then, keep looking up.